Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solos. On this week's episode of Indie Matters, reporters Riley Snyder and Michelle Rundells talk with Attorney General Aaron Ford about housing and evictions in the state after the governor put a moratorium on evictions at the beginning of the pandemic. After that, editors John Ralston and Elizabeth Thompson talk about our new judicial tracker, as well as all of our resources for the coming primary election. At the end of the show, we introduce you to our new indie turn, Savannah Strott. But before any of that, here are some numbers regarding the coronavirus in the state. As of recording this podcast on Thursday, May 28th, the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Nevada exceed 8,200 and 407 people have died. Reported recoveries, meanwhile, have now neared 6,000 statewide, and the number of people tested now totals more than 131,000. For more details on the coronavirus, including a detailed infographic and regularly updated spreadsheet, head to the NevadaIndependent.com. Now on to Riley and Michelle's conversation with Attorney General Aaron Ford and Chief Deputy Attorney General Mark Kruger. Yeah, um, Attorney General, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to speak with us. Thank you so much as well, um, Mark. Maybe the the first thing we can do, um, you know, we know about this, we're going to get into it into more detail, but can you just do kind of a quick overview of what you and your office's role has been uh, in terms of the eviction moratorium that Governor Sisolak ordered a few months ago, kind of both the, um, the enforcement advisory, any other role that you've taken in regards to that emergency directive? Absolutely. Well, uh, um, good afternoon, Riley and Michelle, and thanks again for having uh, Mark and, uh, and me on the, uh, on the podcast here. Uh, yeah, my office, particularly the Bureau of Consumer Protection, has been intimately involved in uh, almost every aspect of the eviction moratorium, and, and it's also a foreclosure moratorium, as I'm sure you you, you know. Um, but from the drafting of the moratorium to researching the issues related to um, the limits of doing what we've been trying to do uh, to enforcing it, and the Bureau, Bureau of Consumer Protection has been very busy as of late um, enforcing the eviction moratorium uh, against landlords uh, who sometimes uh, were seeking to break the law, uh, but we've had some great success stories as well. Um, we've been working with the governor as he's extended the, the moratorium over the course of the last, I, I guess it's two months now, uh, and we'll continue working with him as he contemplates ways to keep folks safe. As the governor said when we rolled out this moratorium, it's hard to stay home for Nevada if you've been evicted. Uh, so we've been trying to keep folks in their homes. Uh, of note, though, is that the moratorium um, against evictions isn't just in the residential co- uh, context. It also applied in the commercial context. And again, that was um, a, an, an approach that the governor took in order to try to help not just uh, individuals, but also Nevada's businesses, understanding that as Nevada closed down, it'd be difficult for these businesses to, to uh, garner funds to pay their own bills. And so uh, we have the foreclosure moratorium, pardon me, the eviction moratorium in the commercial context as well. I'm curious to hear what kinds of complaints have been the most common during the pandemic and and whether you've seen kind of the the types of complaints change as we get further into uh, this pandemic. Let's start by letting you know the type of number of complaints since the moratorium went into effect. We've received a total of 429 eviction or foreclosure complaints. Um, This actually includes complaints received as of yesterday. Um, how our office is trying to handle this is as a team, we process these complaints. We try to get them processed within 24 to 48 hours after receiving them. Obviously, if somebody's um, being evicted, you time is of the essence. 
Um, we've resolved 367 of those complaints as of uh, last evening. So um, there's additional complaints that come in and have been resolved. On average, we receive about or approximately 15 complaints a day. I would have to say the most difficult complaint that we deal with are those where landlords and tenants live in a communal type um, housing arrangement, um, usually where a tenant rents a room from the landlord. Um, and obviously you can imagine that, you know, if there's difficulties, uh, tenants on pain, there's increased stress and there's increased overall stress from the pandemic itself. So um, those situations um, get a little bit um, stressful. And I, I think our team's done a great job in being able to talk to the parties and, you know, get them to understand that this is, this is where we are and, and you know, safety and the governor's directive um, is important and, and we need to abide by it. So uh, I've been, I think the team has been very impressed with actually um, many landlords um, that have come into compliance. A lot of them, it was just merely a lack of understanding. Um, so what we did initially in the beginning um, we created a frequently asked questions, which was geared towards um, both tenants and landlords to kind of educate them about what the directive means or what the prohibit prohibitions and the mandates were. Um, but we quickly found out that we needed to gear up another frequently asked questions uh, page or term sheet for landlords. Um, because I think there was some confusion about what landlords could do, how long the directive's gonna last, things like that. So to answer your question about how we've seen a change in these, um, that's been the most change, is just a continuing education. I think Riley was at a press conference last week, and, and what the governor had said then was that in 10 days, he was going to have to decide how long the, the moratorium lasted. So we're almost to that point. Can you guys give us any insight into when this is going to lift? I can't. Um, that's the governor's call, um, as well as uh, the folks who he, to whom, with whom he consults on the uh, science side, on the medical side. Um, what I can say is that if the governor decides he needs to extend the moratorium for another month, my office, as it has been for the last two months, will be available to help to enforce that directive. Um, you know, I think what we're seeing right now is obviously progress in the state. Uh, but I'm not in a position to be able to, uh, nor am I uh, the one who can make the decision as whether or not that progress is sufficient uh, reason for lifting the moratorium. With the first of the month coming, um, have landlords been asking you, uh, you know, whether that's going to be the cutoff? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we get questions like that frequently, um, and I get them all over the place. Uh, and it's not just from um, residential landlords. We hear from commercial um, entities as well, um, especially with the economy opening up and, and places starting to be able to have patrons in, then the question becomes if they're going to be able to raise money, shouldn't they be able to pay their rent? Uh, and that's one of the questions that I've received as of, as, as of today. Uh, again, uh, you know, the, the ultimate conclusion in that regard is going to be up to uh, the governor and his experts, and, and my office will stand prepared to um, uh, enforce uh, anything that he decides on that particular arena. Uh, we, we've asked the governor's office the same question and totally understand that um, that's not your, your place to decide when that directive might get extended or not. But if memory serves, the, the directive itself says that uh, tenants and their landlords um, are encouraged to come up with a kind of payment plan so there's not one big balloon payment at the end of the moratorium period. Um, can you talk at all if your office has done any uh, preparatory work towards that to, to try to avoid people having to pay two or three months of rent in, in one fell swoop or what 
your office might be able to do to avoid that kind of problem from coming up. Yeah, I'm going to take a first step at it, but I'm going to kick it over to Mark again, my go-to guy on some of these issues. Uh, we've been we've been engaged with uh, s- several entities who are interested in in what happens post eviction moratorium. Um, you know, again, I'm not a policymaker anymore. I'm not the Senate Majority Leader. I don't get to pass laws that affect these types of issues. I, I enforce the laws uh, and I uh, attempt to help consumers when they're being. Um, defrauded, so to speak. But uh, we can be engaged in the conversation, and we have been engaged in the conversation to see if we could help uh, facilitate conversation and uh, compromise short of legislation or short of mandates. Uh, And with that, I'm going to kick it over to Mark to talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that are taking place, both that we are part of and things that we've heard of happening out out, um, uh, external to our group. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, We have been speaking with the realtors um, associations, uh, apartment complex associations, uh, legal aid, as well as other interested parties to try to figure out, um, I guess, twofold. One is to see if we can craft a way that an agreement that can be made that would be able to work for each one of these groups, as well as the tenants and, of course, the courts. There would probably naturally be an directive that would go with that. And the idea is that it would through a series of steps or phases, just a very coordinated effort in, in lifting the directive when the time comes. And then the agreement would take the outstanding uh, amount of arrearages, rental arrearages that weren't paid, allow the landlords and the tenants to develop a payment plan, consider those amounts cured um, and no longer in default, um, and then provide a mechanism by which they could pay over time. Um, in addition to making their regular monthly rents. We should say, though, that this is not etched in stone, and so we don't want to set an expectation that this <laughs> is going to be happening, right? So please, as you report on this, uh, make it a point to say that conversations are taking place, but no decision uh, has been made, no no compromise has been agreed to. Um, and by the way, the legislature has the ability um, in a, during a session to address some of these issues as well. So uh, what, we're, what we're trying to do is be proactive. Uh, we've seen... Um, foreclosure crisis crises is that the plural I don't know we've seen a foreclosure crisis in the past um, and we've in, in my office through the home again uh, program has been able to um, work through some of those things so we're, we're relying upon though that expertise uh, in the ways that we are engaging and encouraging folks to work together to solve a problem that we know is um, imminently occurring there's talk from a, a couple sectors. Uh, I think maybe Plan had brought it up, and I, I've heard Jen Breckis bring it up. The idea of rent forgiveness. People are, are calling for that. Is there any traction to that, or is it just an idea at this point? Is that being discussed? Is that even a, a legal option um, that, say, the legislature could, could enact? You know, I, I don't know if I'm in a position to... Um speak to the entire legality of a, of a rent freeze or rent forgiveness or whatever the phraseology it is you're talking about there. Uh, to the extent it becomes something that um, um, is more viable, then, you know, my office would be prepared to uh, offer guidance in, the, in that arena. Um, you know, what we are cognizant of is this. We know that we're in a pandemic right now. We know that this is something that has not been experienced in a, in, in a century uh, almost or a little over a century. Um, and that we are operating in, in unprecedented times. Uh, the Constitution still exists. We know that, uh, and we know that we have plenary authority under, we as in the governor has authority under 414, NRS 414, to try to make uh, rules and orders that are going to help uh, move us through and get us uh, out of this pandemic. 
Uh, but we're, we're also cognizant of the fact that we're still bound by certain constitutional provisions. And we want to uh, be certain that any advice we provide or any solutions that are presented, um, you know, walk, walk that line um, and, and, and fit that particular uh, scheme. So uh, that's what I can promise, whether it's uh, an issue related to rent freezing or anything else. We're going to analyze this under the Constitution and, and make recommendations uh, to those who have the ability to make the actual decisions. Um, I think those are all the questions I have in the eviction issue, but just wanted to ask you a couple more questions, um, Attorney General, about some other issues stemming from the pandemic. That um, same day that, that the president sent out a tweet, uh, he threatened to withhold funding. You know, if we proceeded with a vote by mail election, you responded by saying, if he does, we'll see you in court. Has that escalated? It's been a, it's been a week. Um, have there been any move to take funding away from Nevada that's, uh, that's bringing you into the situation? So not to my knowledge. Um, you know, we have um, several agencies who would be able to um, ascertain whether funds are being withheld, whether it's the treasurer, um, obviously the governor and some of our counties, and I haven't heard of uh, any effort uh, to withhold funds. Uh, but, you know, my, my response was, um, was, was, was true, to my, true to my feelings on this issue. And that is, there are, there are very limited circumstances um, which, in which he could withhold funds, and it is not after funds have already been dispersed. Um, so, you know, it was unfortunate to see uh, that, that threat being made, um, but as Nevada's Attorney General, um, I will do all that I can to ensure that our sovereignty um, is, is maintained, and I will see him in court if he attempts to do something that's unlawful. Great. Well, thank you so much um, for taking the time and walking us through this. I know a lot of readers have questions about the future of the, the moratorium and, and what's next as we enter into phase two. So I appreciate you taking the time to share with us what you guys know for sure at this point. Absolutely. Now we hear from editors John Ralston and Elizabeth Thompson as they talk about the coming election and how we're covering it. John Ralston, as always, uh, here at the Nevada Independent, we do our best to provide the best elections coverage for our readers and listeners across the state. Let's talk about our brand new judicial candidate page and, and what it's on and why we're doing it. Well... Uh, this is something that has frustrated me for as long as I've lived here and, and probably has frustrated you and many, many, many other people, uh, not just that judges run for office and they shouldn't run for office, but that they run for office and people know very little about them. And, and even I, who is supposed to be the ultimate political junkie in Nevada, don't always know everything I should know about judges. There's just not enough information uh, out there. There's evidence with every election that when people get down to those races, they skip them. And I'm talking about thousands upon thousands of people just skipping those races. And so it's frustrated me that there hasn't been a, an attempt by any media organization to really provide what we are now providing uh, on, on the independent site, which is a transparent, in-depth, uh, uh, unbiased look at, at, at these judicial candidates. Now, I should say, uh, as you know, Elizabeth, we didn't do as much as we wanted to do for the primary because uh, of, of what's happened with the pandemic and, and, and the timeline now being very different because it's a nearly all-male primary. But we still have more information up on that site, detailed answers to questionnaires from about 60% of the candidates on the ballot 
in Clark County. I'm sorry we're only doing Clark County this election, but we plan on doing this for a long time, eventually uh, expanding it statewide. Yeah, so, and I'll mention too that we did do the Supreme Court races as well. So uh, folks, if you're on the website and you click on the Judicial Races tab, uh, which is tagged as new on the navigation bar, that'll take you to a landing page with a list of all the races. And if you click on those races, you'll find uh, a little photo and a job title and a name of each candidate. And if you click uh, further into uh, those candidate blurbs, uh, you'll find the extensive survey, uh, the answers to that that John's referring to. We've also provided the contribution and expense reports um, so that people have an opportunity to see who uh, around the state is giving to these judges to support their campaigns. That, that can be enlightening uh, as well. So we hope you'll check that out. And then as John said, uh, we didn't do as much as we wanted for the, the primary. We got hurried up quite a bit uh, by the fact that the ballots started getting mailed out way before we were ready for that to happen. Um, but for the general election, we're going to expand on this section even more. We hope you'll look at it. Uh, we hope it'll help you vote. And we hope you'll tell us what you'd like to see. Uh, towards the general election, right? Yeah, we always ask our readers to help make uh, uh, the the indie better, and we often get great suggestions, things that even though we think we've thought of everything, we have not. And and so uh, we've already gotten some great feedback from people who uh, uh, had not voted yet and found this to be a great resource. And uh, I think it is a great resource for people, and I think it's going to only get better. And I think people will really appreciate it even more in the general when we're going to have a team of legal experts analyzing these questionnaires and uh, we are going to be doing some reporting and having law students at, at Boyd help us with some of the legal research, which I'm really happy about. Yeah, we're excited about our partnership with, with Boyd Law and the team we've assembled. I, I think it'll be great. I'm, I'm so happy that uh, someone in Nevada is finally doing this. I'm even happier than it, that it is us. Um, let's turn then to our main elections page. So as always, we've got, we're covering as many of the big uh, races as we can, all the congressional races, all the statewide races, and then some of the county level uh, races as well. And then regents um, we've included. So people, you can just go to that page, click around. We've got candidate bios. We've got endorsements. Uh, on the legislative races, we've got kind of a lay of the land so you can get a feel for which seats are really in play, which seats are already a lock because of voter registration, how things are shaping up for the Assembly and the Senate. Uh, to, so the Republicans, you know, whether they can claw back some seats, as an example, is one of the questions as we, we head towards the general. So um, that's there, as always, uh, along with an ad tracker. Not that there's that many ads in the, the primary, but as we move towards the general, there will be lots of ads, and, and we'll be reporting on those ads, too, to give you a chance to see what, what messaging the candidates are, are putting out there. What else do you want to say about the, the elections page, John? Well, I think the elections page is the centerpiece of, of what we've considered from the beginning of, of the Indy to be one of the most important parts of our coverage of Nevada, which is providing people with a, a, an innovative resource to go to, 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 to be able to take a look at races they're interested in and, and, and have a lot, bunch of different elements, including maps and endorsements and, and, and more. And so... Uh, I, I, I am very proud of our elections page, but I'm also proud of the coverage that we do that, that, that is tied to the election page and amplifies some of the bigger races, including our series that we started 
in the first election we covered, which is called On the Record, where we get candidates to answer the same set of what we consider important questions. Uh, we, we already are running some now uh, on, on Congressional District 4, which uh, I think has like 63 Republicans vying <laughs> for the opportunity uh, to face uh, Stephen Horsford in that race, of course. Uh, didn't seem that interesting and may end up not being that interesting, but now with the revelation that has gotten national attention that Horsford admitted to an extramarital affair, I think the Republicans now think, whether rightly or wrongly, that that race may now be more in play. And so they're going to care more about who wins that nomination. It'll be very interesting uh, to watch that and the other congressional race as well, which <clears throat> has had a lot of nasty to and fro uh, among three uh, different candidates, former state treasurer, a former professional wrestler, and a, a woman with a, a, a web TV show who is very active on uh, social media. Maybe it's not a TV show, but she's very active on social media. And Mindy Robinson and Dan Rodheimer and Dan Schwartz, Big Dan and Little Dan and Mindy, I guess, is what that race is. Yeah. Uh, that's another one that Jacob has been following, uh, who's covering the congressional races for us. And so uh, that election page is, is, is a great reference tool, but it's also something that's just part of our overall coverage of the elections. Uh, click around, let us know what you think, tell all your friends that they should be reading us before they vote. And speaking of voting, we're less than two weeks away from the deadline to mail your ballot or drop your ballot if you prefer somewhere. John, we've never had a mail-in or a mostly mail-in election in Nevada. There's been, let's say, mixed reviews from the public in different parts of the political spectrum on whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. What, what do you want people to know about the mail-in election? Well, they should know that it is uh, very secure or about as secure as it can be. Uh, in fact, our, our great multimedia editor, Joey Lovato, did an, an interview in a video with uh, Wayne Thorley, who is uh, the, the Secretary of State's deputy for elections, and how they're curing signatures. This is the thing that confuses people the most, I, I, I think. And I've actually had friends who have sent back ballots, and, and then they've said, no, this doesn't quite match. We need to make sure this is your correct signature. They are checking all of these signatures. This nonsense about uh, that you can just you know get print out a bunch of ballots and sign them and they're going to get counted. That is not going to happen. The controversy, of course, is that the Democrats uh, wanted to send uh, ballots to so-called inactive voters. That word is a little bit misleading, uh, and and that is why the Republicans are using it to try to kind of sow some dissension, uh, and 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 all the way up to the national level with President Trump talking about mail-in ballots, inactive voters. Uh, still can vote. They're on the rolls. That They probably don't live where the ballot was sent. And so you have had some scenes, isolated scenes of ballots scattered or around uh, mail rooms at apartment complexes. People can't just pick those up and, and, and get those ballots voted. They could mail them in. But, the, you know, unless there is a ring of expert forgers uh, in, in, in Nevada doing this, which is, I think, highly unlikely, it is it is pretty secure. But one thing that I think is gonna be interesting to watch, Elizabeth, is that I think people generally are going to end up liking this mail voting. Uh, it's easy, you can sit at home, you get your mail ballot, you fill it out and you mail it in. You don't have to worry about going to wait in a line, going to a, to a, to a, a polling place. 
Uh, and so we'll see. The turnout's going to be very high. It already seems to be uh, pretty high. More than, I think it's about 120,000 ballots in Clark County have already been uh, returned, which is huge uh, this far from an election. Yeah, so and John, uh, I believe I've been successful as of today convincing John he's going to start uh, blogging some of the turnout uh, numbers on mail ballot soon. I bet some of you have been missing that. So he'll be reporting on, on that from time to time between now and the election. I want to make something clear about the inactive voters. What, what it means, uh, guys, is that so you're registered to vote, but, but maybe you didn't vote in the last, let's say, election or two. Um, so your signature's on record with the Secretary of State. You know, you've been identified as a person who's voted in Nevada at least once, but you, you haven't done so recently. That, that's really what it means to be an inactive voter. Uh, and yes, of course, it's true. People, people move, so a ballot might get uh, sent somewhere it shouldn't, uh, as John said, unless there's just a really uh, clever conspiracy of uh, people who are, who are out to I mean, how they would even get all these uh, signatures together in order to uh, enact widespread voter fraud, who, who knows? Uh, the video that Joey did with Wayne, I thought was extremely helpful um, because they have a pretty tight process for uh, checking the signatures. And I, I personally thought it was hilarious that the day that uh, the Republicans, including Trump, were making the most out of the potential for fraud for the mail-in election for Nevada, and Trump was even threatening that, oh, we're going to yank your federal support. Um, Republican Senator James Settlemeyer uh, made mention of the fact that he himself was on the way to get a signature checked um, for a ballot because the uh, Secretary of State or the County of Clerk, the County Clerk, excuse me, had, had reached out. Uh, so the signature curing system seems to be working just fine. Um, as far as I know, and um, I, for one, am quite confident that it'll go well. And as John said, I think people will be clamoring for the opportunity to, um, to mail vote in the future. By the way, it's going to take them uh, probably a week to count all of the ballots. Uh, the, 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 the state law, I believe, says the county commissions have to canvas me, certify the election within 10 days after the election. So, so I believe they have that long, actually, to count all the votes. I'm going to predict that it's going to take them all 10 days. Um, so add that to June 9th is the day that we'll have the final, final results. Uh, I'm going to take this uh, opportunity of this last 30 seconds to just say that um, we at the Indy have decided we're going to do a live election night show. Uh, we're not sure whether it's going to be a Facebook Live or what. Joey Lovato is working on that to figure out the technical aspect. Um, but starting at about 8 p.m. on June 9th, uh, we're going to be online talking about uh, whatever results have come in at that point. Um, John may be calling some races if it's obvious uh, based on uh, the numbers that the, a race is going to go a certain way. Uh, and, and we'll be talking about what that means then for the general election in some of those races. Uh, we'll probably be online for at least a couple hours. So if you've got nothing else to do on uh, election night, mix yourself a cocktail and uh, tune into Indie TV or Facebook Live. We'll be uh, keeping you posted on the website and in the Daily Indie uh, on our plans for the election show. And, uh, I, hope we have, I hope we have cocktails as well, uh, Elizabeth, on that show. We may uh, need I'm, all, I'm all for it. I, I, I will not prohibit uh, such a thing if the, if the team agrees. So that sounds good to me. <laughs> all right. Okay. Good talking with you. Thanks.
All right, and so this is the last segment of the podcast, the fun segment. And this week, we decided to uh, kind of get to know a new member of the indie team. We've got a new intern, uh, Savannah Strott. Savannah, how's it going? It's going well, Joey. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. And so this is your probably what your like eighth or ninth day on the job. Yes. Yes. So how has working for the indie gone so far? <laughs> it's been real. It's been really exciting. Um, I've been reading the indie since it started, so it's really it's been really exciting to like actually be part of the team and kind of see how everything works, and of course uh, make my own work. That's been it's been really cool, and I've really enjoyed it. Well, we're we're glad to have you, and it's cool that you've been reading us since the beginning. Are you uh, are you from Las Vegas? I am technically. I'm from Henderson, um, but I go to school and I go to school in DC. So when people ask like, where are you from? I do claim Vegas, but for all of the Nevada people, Henderson specifically. <laughs> so, and where do you go to school in DC? Um, I go to school. It's called American university. Um, it kind of sounds fake, but I promise it's a real university. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's located in Northwest DC. All right. What are you studying? Journalism? Yes. Journalism. And then I have minors in Spanish and creative writing. All right. So you've, uh, you grew up in Vegas or Henderson and you're going to school in DC now. What, uh, you know, kind of, what, what, what other readers need to know about you? What, what's some of your activities that you like to do? What are the things you like to report on? Yeah. So I would say when it comes to reporting on things, I don't have like a specific beat that I found. Um, I, I really enjoy, I feel like this is a journalist cliche, but you know, telling unheard stories, um, kind of across topics. So, but I guess I found in what I've reported on, like at school, um, for my school publication I write for, and then past jobs, I, I really enjoy reporting on immigration, education as well, um, sometimes more cultural issues, but I'm kind of open to anything um, as far as reporting on um, anything that I think is interesting and hasn't been covered yet. So what are the places that you've worked before, before interning at the Indy? Yeah, so I was actually studying abroad before um, the pandemic really. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was having a great time in Madrid, in Spain, um, this past winter. And so while I was there, I interned at a tourism magazine there. And so I kind of wrote about different cultural aspects about Madrid and um, different events and things going on in both English and Spanish um, that was geared towards people coming to the city for vacation. Um, And then before that, I worked at Current, which is a trade publication for people in public media. Um, So I was covering different things about radio stations, TV stations, um, for people in public media across the nation. All right. All right. And then my last question is just, you know, how is it kind of jumping into a new job in this interesting environment that we're all in right now? Um, it's, it's definitely interesting. I feel very fortunate to have a job and to have gotten a job because I know tons of friends whose internships got canceled, um, which is always unfortunate. And I know in general, people like jobs are kind of scarce these times. So I'm very fortunate, first of all. But I think as a journalist, there's a lot to cover, um, which is good, um, that there's a lot to kind of cover and a lot to see. And I think there's a lot of different angles and ways that we can look at this. And I think the Indy is doing that. And I'm really excited to get to do that. All right. Well, Savannah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And hopefully we'll hear more from you on the podcast and other other forums. We'll read about you and we'll, we'll hopefully we'll have you in some videos and stuff. So uh, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Aaron Ford, Mark Kruger, Riley Snyder, Michelle Rendells, John Ralston, Elizabeth Thompson, and Savannah Strott for being on the show this week. 
If you like what you heard, you can find us on all of the podcast platforms. Make sure you leave us a rating and review there as well. It helps the show grow and gets important information out to as many listeners as possible. And of course, if you have comments, criticism, praise, or want to suggest a segment or a person for us to interview, you can email us at jacob at com or joey at com. People with Bodies wrote our original theme song, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.